Welcome to the Edge of Sports Podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. In a week where a team called the Cleveland Indians with a minstrel, red-faced, grinning, idiot, with a feather known as Chief Wahoo, now represents Major League Baseball, we are going to be a pod of resistance against this We are speaking to legendary civil rights activist, the Reverend Jesse Jackson, and Jackie Keeler, a Navajo Yankton Dakota Sioux writer and the founder of Eradicating Offensive Native Mascotry. What they have in common is that just last week, they were both at Standing Rock Reservation in North Dakota as part of a historic Native-led resistance against the Dakota Access Pipeline, or DAPL, project that threatens environmental devastation of Native lands. This pipeline is over 1,100 miles long and runs from the Bakken oil fields in North Dakota through South Dakota and Iowa, and then it ends in Illinois. It crosses 209 bodies of water and carries a daily load of 570,000 barrels of oil extracted through hydraulic fracturing. And oh, by the way, it comes within half a mile of the Standing Rock Indian Reservation. And now we've got him here right now on the line, Reverend Jesse Jackson. Reverend Jackson, you were just in Standing Rock, North Dakota, to fight to stop the Dakota Access Pipeline. You called it, quote, the ripest case of environmental racism I've seen in a long time, end quote. So what did you see? Native Americans are fighting for lifeline, but the pipeline has taken precedence over the lifeline. They were not respectfully communicated with. They didn't have enough power to protect themselves, so they were kind of run over. The case they're making is that the pipeline only cuts through the territory, but cuts under the Missouri River. Mm. And there's a history of leakage of those pipes. And so while it starts upstream with the complaints by the Native Americans, given the number of leakages that EPA reports, it could affect 17 million people downstream. What starts upstream goes downstream. Yeah. I also think the Native Americans, the treaties are being dishonored, the humanity is being disrespected. Mm. They put them out on those reservations really to perish. Only to find that beneath the oil that was riches, they just dumped it right back and it's taking it from them. They are among the poorest people in America. Mm. And you see that abounding poverty there. Even if it were a negotiated deal, but you shared the profits and they get no benefit except poison as a result of their concession. I think that's why there's such a world outcry. In Flint, the leakage affects 102,000 people. But if the pipe breaks, it affects 17 million people. So it's many, many times more mm. people affected than Flint. Wow. On the front lines where you were, what was the spirit of the activists on the ground? Did they feel demoralized? Did they feel ignored? Or did they you get a sense of a fighting spirit? Great high spirit, people willing to sacrifice themselves unto death and using basic nonviolence and suffering and sacrifice as a way of getting attention. Mm. What I found to be astonishing was no evidence of any harm there very openly and privately, speaking of nonviolence, they understand the power of an unwinnable violent situation. It is very clear on the nonviolent part. 
But the arm tanks, and we saw a guy at the uh, checkpoint with his finger on the military assault weapons. I mean, the militarization is just like cruel. Mm. We must have seen 50 tanks mm. for an unarmed people. And blocking roads, you couldn't get out and you couldn't get in. We finally negotiated our way out after for the five-minute ordeal. But the level of militarization is much worse than what we saw at Ferguson. Mm. Much worse than Ferguson. Now, I've also seen a lot of footage online of police uh, sicking dogs on protesters. I've seen them before. I saw them in Greensboro in 63. I saw them in Birmingham. I've seen them before. I saw the excessive militarization in Ferguson. Hmm. I'm not sure I've ever seen as much of a military operation as I saw at Standing Rock. I mean, just on both sides of up on the hill, snipers, snipers on the hill. Man, it was like, like they were preparing to take a military hill. That was no military center. There was no justification for that kind of show of military overkill. I mean, how do you explain that? Is it because of the, the value of oil, the power of the oil lobby? I mean, why, why the overkill in this case? I think it's, it's both the value of the oil, the 17 banks were financing the deal, and the lack of political power to protect themselves by the Native Americans. Wow. Uh, and use them as an example. It's like hitting a uh, a fly with an axe, you know, overkill to, to make a statement. They were speaking to people other than just them. And given this climate of militarization and police violence, uh, thought they were trying to make their statement at the expense of the Native Americans, of the Sioux. What, in this situation, what could President Obama do? What could the federal government do to help this situation? But he had urged them to uh, cease billing for a while. It was not an executive order. It was a moral appeal. I think that needs to be federal intervention. A, to protect the honor of treaties, the health of Native Americans, but also the environment for everybody. Mm. The evidence of pipeline leakages and its impact around the country. And if that one starts to leak, the downflow of that river, uh, 17 million get the water from that river. Wow. I think some folks might just be a little surprised to hear you speak with the passion and knowledge about this issue. I know your history, and I know you've been working on Native American issues for decades. But as someone who grew up doing work around fighting Jim Crow and civil rights, uh, when did you start getting involved with Native American issues? What was your first experience? How did that start to happen for you? My father's part Cherokee. Your father's part Cherokee? I'm not sure that was as big a fact as I have Africanness. He was sensitive to it. Uh, when I ran for president, I stayed on the reservation, put national spotlight on them because of the state of their poverty. And Dr. King's last staff meeting he convened, the last birthday staff meeting he convened, a number of Appalachian whites, Native Americans, African Americans, Deep South. Jewish allies from New York and labor on a poor people's campaign included Native Americans. We worked with them some during the uh, poor people's campaign of 1968. 
Wow. I, I never knew that. I never knew Native Americans were part of the Poor People's Campaign. Uh, I was speaking to Santita, uh, to your daughter, Santita Jackson, and she said that she had believed that you had traced the Cherokee part of your ancestry even back to the Trail of Tears. Well, I tell you who did the most research. I ran when the, the book that Freda did, uh, Jesse, he did, he did a lot of the research himself. It's in that book. And I raised the issue of the Trail of Tears because there was some college football game over the weekend where a team was playing another team with a Native American mascot, and they said, we're going to put you on a Trail of Tears. And... How cruel. Yeah, and of course, you know, your Chicago Cubs right now, and people might know your your Chicago to the core. Uh, your Chicago Cubs are playing the Cleveland Indians. People see this mascot, Chief Wahoo. Is it Has it been surreal for you this last week to be at Standing Rock with actual Native Americans? The Redskins is far more offensive than Indians, you know, per se. Mm-hmm. But we grew up watching how Hollywood used its powers to reverse our psyche. It had the Native Americans scalping the whites, when in fact the opposite, the whites were scalping the Native Americans. Mm. Just like in the uh, African movies, how they displayed us as less human beings, less sensitive monkeys. It, it was Hollywood played a big role in how we, in how we see Native Americans. Mm. And the abounding poverty, the lack of basic necessities, they've been put on a reserve not just to be exploited, but to be left in isolation. Like it's kind of protracted genocide. Mm. And of course, the level of police violence against Native Americans is more than against any ethnicity in the country. In those areas, in the remote areas, that without any media coverage, they feel free to violate them. They cannot protect themselves. And if you judge a society by how it treats its most oppressed people, how's the United States looking like right now? It's the worst of apartheid. It's not just the police brutality, it's the brutality of budgets, cutting off resources. You know, it's one thing to uh, be hit with a stick. Another thing to be hit with the lack of access to education, health care, jobs, wages. That's ultimately even worse. Mm. I think that there's a connection between these kinds of mascots like Chief Wahoo, like the Washington football team, and the way it pushes people to actually ignore actual real Native Americans and real Native American issues. Do you think there's a connection there? These mascots trivialize Native Americans, and when they object that should be the basis, not an opinion poll. If that had been an opinion poll, slavery wouldn't have ended. <laughs> right. And if an opinion poll, segregation wouldn't have ended. If I say you offend me, you can't check with the group and see, ask them whether or not you offended me. I'm telling you, you offended me. <laughs> mm. Now, this is a sports and politics show, and I would be remiss if I didn't ask you your thoughts about Colin Kaepernick and about him taking protest to the National Football League. Your thoughts on what Kaepernick is doing and why it matters? Well, he's leading a nonviolent protest. And the substance of his protest is the fact of police brutality 
So his protest is not abstract, it is real. And for those who are not sensitive or not affected, would be dismissive of him. But if, if it were not true, it wouldn't be my, but that's the substance of his protest. I mean, Jack Robinson raised the same points, you know, some years ago. At that time, we honor the flag. The flag is supposed to protect us, but there are some of us. The flag didn't protect. My father came out of World War II. He had to sit behind lots of fields of the war on American military bases. The flag was flying. The flag didn't protect. He honored the flag. The flag didn't honor him. Mm. Didn't honor our family. We honored the flag. I was taught to sing Star Spangled Banner, salute the flag, in an all segregated school where we had one book for six students. Mm. And went double shifts rather than have another school. So we've always honored the flag. The flag has always honored us. Now, as long as you have been a political person, you have tried to amplify the political power of sports. Why, even at a young age, did you see that there was such political potential to get messages out through sports and through athletes? Well, you know, even in biblical times, David takes on Goliath. Goliath has all the armament David has. He's the capacity to be a slinger. Uh, Samson and his role with the Philistines. Even in biblical times, uh, the role that athletes have been gifted to play. I mean, when Jack, when Jack Johnson won the heavyweight championship fight at a time when 5,000 blacks were lynched between 1880 and 1940 during that season of lynching, he could knock out a white guy. became a source of, of heroism and as well as, as despise. I mean, Jack Johnson, he would fight, you know, be rise after the fight. Uh, the impact of Jesse Owens at the 36 Olympics. I asked him one time, I said, Jesse, how did you feel when Hilda wouldn't shake your hand? He said, well, not too bad because Roosevelt didn't, didn't shake my hand either. Mm. <laughs> you know, uh, the Julius Max Milling fight was a global fight of that season. And Julius defeating Max Milling was like America defeating Germany. It was a David Goliath kind of fight. What's different about the athletic situation are the rules. When Team A plays Team B, the playing field is even, the rules are public, the goals are clear, the referees are fair, and the score is transparent. When that happens, you can accept the outcome. You lose or you win, but there's no sense that any kind of bigotry had a role in the outcome. Those are rules you want to apply across the society. Mm. I'm going to say part of your history that I bet a lot of folks out there don't know. And people might not realize that you have done the eulogies at the funeral services of Jackie Robinson, Joe Lewis, Sugar Ray Robinson, Kurt Flood, and Joe Frazier. And Junior Gilliam. And Junior Gilliam. I know we don't have time to go through each of those services, but which of those really sticks with you today as you look back, and which remarks touched you in your heart in a way that you said, this, this needs to be done? I had gotten to know all of them in one way or another, but I think that Jack Robinson, when he died, he was such a social change agent. He wanted a young person. He was a member of the Rainbow Push Board. And 
before his body was cold, so to speak, Rachel called me from the morgue. So he, he wanted me to have the platform, you know. He, he had that sense of life beyond death. Uh, Joe Lewis, of course, was just a hero for the ages. I remember growing up, I mean, my middle name was Lewis, Jesse Lewis Jackson. At the time when, when, when things, at the, at the darkest of night, Joe Lewis, when he would win the big fight, it meant so much to us. I remember going to his, the wake the night before the funeral and just rubbing his fist and just began to cry. Weak. Because on his fist rode so much of our destiny seems at that time. It was just something magical about the heavy champion of the world. He's not one of nine. He's not one of eleven. He is the guy. And boxing meant that to us. Mm. To all of us. When he would win and Blacks up to the right the next day and pretend they weren't happy. The whites were glad that he beat Max Mellon. Because he was America's boxer that night. But most of the time, they were not pulling for Joe Lewis. And uh, his impact was so significant. We used to laugh about how you go to work the next day after Joe Lewis fight. And, you know, and act like you weren't happy. So, oh, look, Joe got through. It's just be saying something. Mm. He just had such a profound impact about it. He defied the culture. His victories defied the culture. And Kurt Flood, I mean, unlike these other gentlemen, when he when he died, he was not in a good state. What's significant about Kurt Flood, of course, is that Jackie opened up the doors, but Kurt Flood universalized the rules. He changed the rules of the game. When these guys joined the major leagues, all of them joined their starters and all-stars, which means that they all... What was called major really was the white leagues. And these guys immediately came in as Jack Robinson, Campanella, Don Newcomb, Hank Aaron, Willie Mays. They didn't come in and take no course. Now to be a baseball player. They didn't come in as interns. Came in as all stars. You know? I got to ask, I've been doing some math while you were speaking, and. You were about 30 years old when you were asked to do that eulogy for Jackie Robinson. That would turn the butterflies in my stomach into monsters, into mutants. Do you remember being nervous at all? Yeah, I remember having to think deeply about you know, what he meant and how anxious I was. All of the baseball elites for at the church. Those guys made thirty-five dollars or $40,000 a year playing baseball. In the offseason, they would come south. With the All-Star team, the Jack Robinson All-Stars, the Capitol All-Stars, they get like $5,000 a game playing for the local, playing with the local teams. They made more money in the off-season, what they call barnstorming. They're, they're playing in the majors. But their names stood out so much. I remember my father, Charles Jackson, played with the Don Lucum All-Stars. I was a bad boy. Don, that we talk about it every so often now. I, was, I must have been eight or nine years old. Bad boy for Don Lucum. Because my father played some fill on that team. Wow. You know, when, when you say that story, it makes me think of the August Wilson play Fences. Do you ever think about that historic break between the African-American community and baseball, which exists in such lower numbers now? In the rural areas, I think the first time I touched the basketball, I may have been seven. And there was no basketball courts on the playground. We played with a high rim in each other's backyard playing basketball. 
Now, the least they have, uh, if they don't have a swim pool, they have basketball courts all over town. And the, the access to TV today, the rural kid in the lower part of Mississippi sees the, the play the guy makes in Philadelphia at the same time. That was a time, you know, Philadelphia and D.C., New York, maybe Chicago and L.A., kind of the hot spots for basketball. It's no longer true. It's it's been universalized. That's one reason. Second is that baseball is a little more expensive. You got to have property, right? You have to have more land to play on. You got to buy equipment, catches, mitts, and extra balls and stuff like that. And uh, a lot of, a lot of times you have these uh, training youth baseball leagues for white kids and not for black kids. That's why when the kids won the championship in Chicago, year before last, was such a wonderful experience. They found another way to take it from them. But it was just it was a throwback in time to see young black kids on that baseball field perform. Mm. I have just one last question for you. The last question is, is is a little bit a little bit silly, but I have to ask you this. There is a very famous picture of you playing basketball with Marvin Gaye. Have you seen the picture? Yeah. What kind of game did Marvin Gaye have? Could he play basketball? What, and do you remember who won that game? See, I was trying to get Marvin to do a, a free concert, you know, for the freedom movement. And he, he had done before. He said, I don't want to do it this year. I said, you got to do it, Marvin. He said, well, we play basketball. We'll win two games. If I, if I win, I don't sing. If you win, I sing. Well, he sang. <laughs> 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 I told him when I went past him, that's where that song "What's Going On" came from. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I thought you were gonna say "Mercy, Mercy Me." Yeah, that's right, Mercy, Mercy Me. It, it was about nine, it was about nine degrees. It was hot. We was in the backyard playing. We had such fun that day. <laughs> oh, wait, where was it? In my backyard. Oh wow! One on one, two games out of three. Wow, that's fantastic. <laughs> we, 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 we played two games. Yeah, that's the other part people don't know, that you you, uh, you played college uh, football and are an athlete. <laughs> Marvin ran into a buzzsaw. <laughs> well, we, just, we, we were just having fun. Don't, no. don't, don't rate myself among the greats. We just had back backyard basketball. <laughs> okay. Hey, Reverend Jackson, I cannot thank you enough. Thanks so much for joining us here on Edge of Sports. Okay, David. Thank you so much. That was the Reverend Jesse Jackson. If you want to know more about what he is up to these days, you can go to rainbowpush.org or you can follow Jesse Jackson on Twitter at RevJJackson, all one word. And now our next guest is on the line. She is a Navajo Yankton Dakota Sioux writer living in Portland, Oregon, and a founder of Eradicating Offensive Native Mascotry. She wrote a remarkable piece a couple of years ago called My Life as a Cleveland Indian, The Enduring Disgrace of Racist Sports Mascots. And we have her right here on the line, Jackie Keeler. So Jackie Keeler, you were just at Standing Rock like Reverend Jackson was just at Standing Rock, from your perspective, what did you see? Well, I'd have to say that, um, you know, I am Dakota, and um, 
And I stayed at the Ochetishakuin camp. And Ochetishakuin is the main camp there where the thousands of Native people are camped. And it's named after the word in our language for the Great Sioux Nation, which is the Seven Council Fires. And it was amazing because we haven't camped like this together, all the Seven Council Fires together, pretty much since the Battle of the Little Bighorn. What? what, what? Like, like n- never... Um, with AIM in the 1960s, like not since Little Bighorn? Yeah, I mean, this is like, this is different. And wow. this is different than than what happened with Wounded Knee and that. It's extraordinary walking around there because you see all the flags from all the tribes. Hundreds, like over 300 tribes now have come out in support of Standing Rock. And that wasn't the case back then. It's this unity of purpose. I've never seen it before in Indian country. You know, I woke up one morning and they were doing kind of a call to prayer at 6 a.m., calling everyone out. When we live in this camp circle society, they have someone called Nayapaha. He's sort of the town crier. And you could hear the guy's voice, you know, know, water protectors, get up, come and pray, bring your pipes, your charupa. And they prayed at dawn. And then everyone started heading out in their cars like they were going to work. There was a huge traffic jam, over 100 Native people leaving the camp in cars, and 100 cars leaving in the dawn and going to a nonviolent action. And then over the loudspeakers, they were playing John Trudell. He's a, a Santee Dakota poet and aim leader, late aim leader. You know, it's his voice, you know, and you think that poetry doesn't mean anything. But hearing his voice that morning in the dawn with everyone getting ready to go and do an action on behalf of the people in the water, his voice, he has this kind of way of talking and building and it just sort of built to this incantatory speech where he was asking the question, you know, we are the people of the earth. Who are you? Crazy horse. We hear what you say. One earth, one mother. One does not sell the earth. The people walk upon. We are the land. How do we sell our mother? How do we sell the star? How do we sell the air? Crazy horse. We hear what you say. One earth, one mother. One does not sell the earth. The people walk upon. We are the land. And watching all these Native people going out to stand for the earth, it made it very clear that poetry has power. The vision that we've been talking about and sharing as people is coming to life. And that was a really powerful experience for me. You know, I participated in ceremonies before, but this was something on another scale. And it really is, I believe, and I've written about this for Telesur, that this is the reemergence of the Great Sioux Nation as a nation. And in our land spread from Minnesota out to Nebraska, up to Alberta, Canada, down into uh, west to Montana. So, you know, we are a really large tribe, but our lands have been divided up. A lot of it taken over by the state of North Dakota and South Dakota. And so this pipeline is actually going through unceded treaty land, which is land that we never actually ceded under treaty. And treaties are legal documents, you know, international law signed between two sovereign nations. Congress ratified this treaty and recognized our sovereignty on the international stage. And we never agreed to give this land up. It's held by force, by actual military force. And you can see that military force out there again. 
Yeah, I wanted to ask you about what the military force opposed to you looked like. But I can't get out of my head what you said about the greatest gathering, the broadest gathering since Little Bighorn. And obviously, there's been no shortage of environmental racism, no shortage of abuse against Native people, no shortage of broken treaties over the last many decades. What is it about this issue that you think has galvanized so many people and brought them together? Well, it's um, the tribe is demanding consultation meaningful consultation in projects that will affect its people at a fundamental level. Their drinking water is only, the tribe has done a study and found that if the pipeline was to break, within two minutes, the oil would reach their head start. Within five minutes, their elementary school. And within 10 minutes, their sole water intake on the Missouri River. And yeah, and the the city of Bismarck has uh, decided that they didn't want this. It was originally slated north, uh, 10 miles north of Bismarck, just upriver from their water intake. But they're trying to force this on our people because we've always been seen as being disposable. And so, and our lands are disposable. And so, um, they're standing up for sovereignty. Tribes are actually sovereign nations within the United States. They have jurisdiction over their lands. We obviously can sign treaties. You know, I mean, these are um, things that states can't do. So technically speaking, our nations have a higher status politically than states do. So really, the state of North Dakota trying to force this on us is abhorrent. And I think that a lot of tribes have joined in because we all fight this fight for sovereignty, for the right to have a say over our territories. The Standing Rock Sioux Reservation and the adjacent Cheyenne River Sioux Reservation, together, they're the largest land base that the Great Sioux Nation has. It's the size of Israel or the size of El Salvador. This is a large area that's going to be impacted, not to mention the 17 million people who live downstream. And and my reservation is also downstream. The burial sites that were dug up are actually Ihonktawan sites from my tribe. We signed the 1851 Treaty of Fort Laramie that's being um, cited right now and invoked. We were the people of the Missouri River And that's why we speak the dialect we do. And so many of the Dakota, Lakota sites along the river are are from our tribe. Wow. So now talk to us, please, about the kind of state response that you saw. It's insane. I mean, it's, I would say after especially what we saw on Thursday, you know, with the crackdown and then, of course, the Saturday before that, where each time about 140 people were arrested, they violenced against peaceful protesters Many people have written the press the contrast between that and Malheur. I live in Oregon, so I covered the Malheur Wildlife Refuge takeover, and it is really, really different, What the response from the law enforcement. As Native people watching this, even on social media, we are traumatized. It's just evident that our concerns are not shared by the state, and that makes you wonder, is this even our country? We're not treated in a reasonable manner. And like maybe it does go back to the fact that People have this mentality of the Indian wars. You even see that in the military today, you know, like in Afghanistan and Iraq, they call it no man's land, Indian territory. And we're the perpetual enemy of the United States. These lands are still held by force, military force. And it's ironic when the U.S. goes overseas to challenge that kind of behavior because the very foundation of many states' land base is based on military occupation of our lands. Mm. So... Let's lay out the situation here. You have the most significant challenge to the U.S. state by Native American solidarity since Little Bighorn, which is just a remarkable statement that I'm still getting my head around. And in that context, 
you have a team called the Cleveland Indians in the <laughs> World Series who are led by a minstrel chief wahoo, the likes of which, you know, frankly, you think would belong in the 19th century or in some museum, and yet it's emblazoned on all their uniforms. Are these just parallel ironic stories, or do you see a connection between this embracing of a mascot and the way the mainstream media has largely blotted out the incredible battle that's taking place in North Dakota? Yeah, once again, asks, it calls to question, like, is this our country? You know, if the concerns that are highest on our mind are not reflected in the media coverage of our country, and I put that in quotations, when you look at the history of Ohio and the state of Ohio, you know, you see it goes back to the Revolutionary War. One of the causes uh, for the Revolutionary War was King George's Proclamation of 1863, part of the treaty they signed after the French and Indian Wars, whereby he told the colonists that they could not go into the Ohio River Valley, that that was Indian land. And the colonists, including George Washington, many of them were land speculators. They had land they wanted to access new land in the Ohio River Valley. And so after they won the Revolutionary War, they did that. They entered Ohio. Of course, we all are very familiar with Tecumseh, and he was the leader that unified the resistance against that takeover of their lands in Ohio. He was the leader of the Shawnee people. He fought at Detroit. He fought most famously at Tippecanoe. Mm -hmm. And the Shawnee people were driven out of Ohio in the 1830s, you know, were physically finally removed completely to Oklahoma to Indian Territory. You know, until Indian people started coming to Cleveland, like my parents did in the 1960s, there was really no nat significant Native population in Cleveland. And, and there is no there are no reservations in Ohio. It's complete genocide and removal. And that, to me, as a Native person, is really stark. I, I think going to states where there are no reservations is really chilling. I mean, it would be like, I guess, for mm -hmm. like a Jewish American person to go back to abandoned shuttles mm -hmm. in, in the Ukraine. It's just a spooky feeling. I've never done that, but I've had the experience of being in the Holocaust Museum where there is an exhibit where they just name every single shtetl that doesn't exist anymore, including the yeah. ones my grandparents came from. Wow. And it's hundreds and hundreds of names, all blotting out every inch of the walls and ceilings. Jeez. And knowing that not one exists anymore, knowing that there's no home for me to ever go to. And it's the f closest I ever came to being like, wow, this is what truly what dispossession must feel like. And I feel it, you know, obviously at one one hundredth the level of somebody who lives with that dispossession in their face. Exactly. I mean, it's, you know, it's a very comparable experience. I think of the Palestinians, of course, as well, like yes, physically yeah. looking at their land and knowing that's not where I can even walk. Yes. That's what it is like to be in states like Ohio. So out of this total disappearance of Native nations and Native people, you have Chief Wahoo coming out of that. You know, I'm half Navajo, my mother's Navajo, and in the Navajo culture, they have this story about the skinwalkers, mostly male witches who wear the uh, skins of animals and take their form. And sometimes, you know, the mascot, masketry reminds me of that. And it is a form of, of course, trophyism. You know, we conquered these people. Now we have a right to use their culture as we choose. You know, and to continue the parallel with the Holocaust in Europe, it would be very similar to, you know, a German team or assuming um, kind of a, a Jewish caricature for their, their sports team. You know, and maybe if they'd won the war, they would be doing that. 
it's, it's really horrific. And, you know, I went back to Cleveland last year and I, I covered in the protest on the season opener there at uh, Progressive Park. And, and I talked to a lot of Clevelanders. And yeah, I was mm-hmm. born there. Cleveland is a Rust Belt city mm-hmm. that can see Detroit from its backyard. Part of it, the American story of manifest destiny progress can be seen with the abandonment of these communities, the profiting and then the abandoning. And, you know, when you think that Tecumseh fought for Detroit and now Detroit mm. is being abandoned and they destroyed the Shawnee people's culture, drove them from their homelands, all to take all that land like that Cleveland and Detroit are on. And now they're willing to abandon it. And I think the people of Cleveland feel that. They feel the fact that America is willing to just let them go. Mm. I feel for Cleveland. I mean, I was born there. When I went there and I told people, even drunk fans at the game, (laughs) they were all like really emotional. They were all like, you know, you must come back. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the only other place I've been told that like that is on the reservation. Mm. And, you know, in Cleveland, they've not experienced a lot of influx of new immigrants. They're pretty much frozen demographically in the early 20th century demographics of sort of European. They have very strong European immigrant identities there. I interviewed one guy and he told me that I'd be fine if the mascot was a Polak or, and they talk like that, mm-hmm. <laughs> as a Slovak, you know, and they have all these sort of local <laughs> stereotypes about each other. And when it was like, I'd be fine if it was a Slovak mascot with white socks. And that's like a local stereotype <laughs> about Slovaks. You know, um, I would love to cheer for Cleveland, but I, I just would love for them to also hear the issues regarding, you know, really a grotesque caricature. And, and of course, all the studies that show the harm it does to Native youth. The study that came out last year from the University of Buffalo that showed that exposure to mascot, Native mascots promoted ne- primarily negative stereotypes and actually increased feelings of uh, negative stereotypes about other ethnic groups, which is not really a great thing in a multicultural, multi-ethnic, multiracial sure. society. And it's it's so scary to me too that you mentioned that because for, for years, I think Native American mascotting has been like a refuge for particularly white people to howl their racism as it becomes less acceptable in the broader society, almost like the safety valve for their hatreds at the other. Yet it's never really a safety valve. It always has a broader corrosive effect. And now you've got, God, I said I wasn't going to say his name on this show, but like you have certain presidential candidates who are saying, why are we hiding this? Let's just put it right out in the open. And it's just like th- th- we haven't been inoculated from racism. And one of the reasons why is native mascotry. Yeah, I, I think I told you before that I created the term mascotry because I think the focus is not just on the native mascot because sometimes that can be sort of prosaic looking and handsome or whatever. And uh, But it's all the um, sort of behavior that mm-hmm. having a native mascot inspires in fans, the wearing of red face, the tomahawk chops, and the entitlement to our identity. I mean, I have attended meetings here in Oregon when I was part of the Oregon mascot working group, the board of education here banned all native mascots from high schools and then was sort of backtracking on that because of opposition. And yeah, and I've seen uh, legislate elected officials really act quite emotional about it and stomp their feet, really um, immature 
And I really felt like the actual act of appropriating our identity had actually really stunted their emotional growth regarding Native people. And um, it means that they are unable to really deal with us in a way that is normal Mm -hmm. (laughs) between two cultures, between two peoples. I mean, Native people are not going away. A lot of these mascots came out during the early 20th century when they thought we are disappearing. Mm. We are not. I mean, there's more of us than ever. I'm a citizen of the Navajo Nation, which has 350,000 members. And the tribe estimates another 200,000 qualify for membership but have not enrolled. And we have a land base the size of Ireland. You know, we are larger than 20-some member states of the UN. We're about the size of, you know, a population of Iceland. I mean, we're countries, you know, within the United States. And, you know, my husband's tribe, the uh, Iroquois, they actually issue their own passports that their um, lacrosse team, the Iroquois Nationals, travel on to make a political point. They've been denied entry sometimes when they play in the uh, world lacrosse series. And and they they usually place third or something. They defeat other countries like the U.S. and Canada, Mm -hmm. which, of course, they enjoy doing because they invented the sport of lacrosse. How can other American people, citizens, understand what Native people are if all they understand is the mascot, if they don't understand us as actual modern nation states that are growing and recovering in their myths? Wow. What should President Obama be doing right now about Standing Rock? What is he doing? What should he be doing? I think he he should make a public statement about it. I don't think he really has. Even when he spoke before the National Congress of American Indians, um, he kind of coached it in sort of, you know, very subdued terms. You know, he should um, send the Justice Department there. I think that there needs to be an investigation of North Dakota's tactics. They are illegal and completely unjust mm-hmm. and punitive actions. I mean, they're they're arresting people, you know, uh, with felony, giving them felonies. They um, There have been reports of them actually... Um, you know, strip searching. They even strip searched the chairman of the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe when he was arrested, and he's the head of state of a nation. Reports of them leaving a, a young woman naked overnight in a cell. She, her mother runs one of the camps. These are very um, troubling, and he needs to take a stand on it. Is it true they've been detaining people in dog kennels? Is that correct? Yes, that's been that happened last time. They detained people in dog kennels. They wrote actually stenciled numbers on their arms, just like- Oh, gee, like Holocaust style? Yes, yes, they did. All the crazy stuff that's coming out of this. And yes, that's definitely tied to the stereotypes that mascots promote that is feeding into this idea that they don't have to treat us like human beings. I mean, this is also seems like profound overkill for an act of nonviolent civil disobedience. Is that because it's, it's oil? Is that why? I mean, what, what, how do you astound, how do you account for how incredibly militarized like the response is to this? I mean, I mean, Jesse Jackson said Ferguson wasn't even close no. to this. Yeah, this, this is much. Yeah. I mean, without America really noticing, North Dakota has become a petrodollar kleptocracy. It used to be run by the railroads originally. Now it's being run by petroleum companies from Canada and the U.S. And to me, it reveals you know, the fact that the state of North Dakota did not, the governor and the city of Bismarck did not want this north of their water intake, but they're trying to force the tribe to accept it, to take that oil out of the Bakken and send it to the Gulf, you know, ship it overseas Mm. to get to the highest bidder. Sometimes I feel like the idea of American freedom is really about impunity, the impunity to do what they want. 
And that's what the Bundys were talking about. And I think that's the coded message in what, uh, you know, angry white America is talking about is the desire for that impunity to do what they like. And they've been doing that in North Dakota, in the Dakotas for, what is it, like 150 some years now since they broke the 1851 treaty. And a lot of uh, American land is, is built on this taking and um, there's no legal mechanism for it. The treaties are international law. Breaking international law is, is a serious issue, but because the U.S. has been able to exert overwhelming military force, they haven't been held accountable in all that time. We are the tribe that they cannot see. We live on an industrial reservation. We are the Halusa Nation. We have been called the Indians. We have been called Native American. We have been called hostile. We have been called pagan. We have been called militant. We have been called many names. We are the Halusa Nation. The Halusa Nation. People are listening to this podcast. Maybe they don't have the ability to make it up to Standing Rock. What can they do? Halusa Nation. Yeah, well, I think they can definitely, um, you know, share the information on social media. They can educate people. If they look at my feed at JF Keeler on Twitter, I definitely post um, opportunities to donate. We're also putting together a page at our, uh, we have a native news magazine called Pollen Nation Magazine, and we're putting up a whole page of information on that. Wow. Jackie Keeler, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for being so generous with your time and your knowledge. Thanks. Thank you for having me. That was Jackie Keeler, ladies and gents. Remember, you can follow her on Twitter at JF Keeler, not just to hear what she has to say about Standing Rock and Mascot Tree, but also to find out how to donate money to the people on the ground in Standing Rock. We are the Halusa Nation. And now, some choice words. And just in time for the election. And true to this show, this week, we're not going to use any word that starts with C, and we're not going to use any word that starts with T. But we do have some election issues to discuss at the intersection of sports and politics. Namely, how NBA players will deal with the end of the Obama era, and will it impact their political involvement, which has risen so seismically. Today, there is a new generation of political athletes in the NBA, comprised of some of the league's brightest stars. This group of highly influential young black men are leveraging their fame to affect change and standing on a set of independent politics that stands apart from what happens in Washington, D.C., It is animated by the fight against racist policing practices, which many players have experienced firsthand, and by the fight for black lives. But 
Coming on the heels of decades of political apathy and apprehension in NBA locker rooms, with rare and notable exceptions from role players like Craig Hodges, Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf, and Atan Thomas, it is worth noting where this generation of stars first got their sea legs to navigate these rocky political waters. It happened when a hoops-loving, one-term senator from Chicago named Barack Obama aimed to take the White House. It's actually really difficult to figure out whether NBA players gravitated to the historic nature of Senator Obama's candidacy and his efforts to become the first black president of the United States, or if his campaign, in fact, reached out to them. But I'm inclined to believe the former. There was Portland All-Star guard Brandon Roy hitting an absurd game-winning rainbow of a shot in 2008 and saying unprompted that, yeah, hitting the game-winner was cool, but not nearly as cool as electing the first black president. Then there was Chauncey Billups and Baron Davis throwing their own fundraisers for the candidate. And there were also two young players who, as a harbinger of today, first revealed a political Jones in 2008. There was 23-year-old LeBron James wearing Obama t-shirts to practice and talking about wanting to really dunk on George Bush. And a 24-year-old named Carmelo Anthony who said that he wanted to score 44 points in a game as a symbol of hope that Obama would become the 44th president. He only scored 28 points that particular night, which probably, I'm going to guess, was not meant to be a tribute to Woodrow Wilson. To President Obama's credit, this connection was natural. I spoke with legendary sports writer Alexander Wolfe, who wrote a book called The Audacity of Hoop, basketball in the age of Obama. He said, President Obama engaged with NBA and WNBA players during his first campaign and actually played the game in office. No president has ever had a bunch of pros join him for a private tournament to celebrate his 49th birthday the way Obama did. So he had cred from the jump. And when he enlisted guys like Kobe and LeBron to help sell Obamacare, they suddenly had skin in the game too, end quote. The question that naturally rises from this is whether the absence of Barack Obama will put a damper on the desire of players to affect change. Will players who have enjoyed a particularly close friendship with President Obama, and I'm looking at you, Steph, take a step back without an ally in the Oval Office? Alexander Wolf does not think so. He said to me, the political momentum in NBA locker rooms won't disappear after Obama leaves office. To be a woke athlete is a generational thing. And with social media tools, players know how much power they have on their own. They don't need marching orders from Pennsylvania Avenue, end quote. To take an even cursory look at the current post-Kaepernick landscape and the intersection of sports and politics, one would have to be inclined to agree. This is all about how we define politics. Connecting to presidential initiatives like Steph Curry's work on gun violence certainly is one form of political engagement, but the kind that's germinating in NBA locker rooms draws far more inspiration from the Black Lives Matter movement, not to mention motivation from the stubborn lack of change in how policing is organized in this country. To be a woke athlete is a generational thing, and the White House 
no matter who is occupying that space, will either get with that program or feel the funk of a nasty political dunk. And now it's time for the Just Stand Up Award. And hey, it's a dual Wisconsin award. Actually, this is a whole Wisconsin show because so much of what I've learned about Dapple comes from my friend Brian Ward, who writes about these issues for the nation and speaks out about Native American issues. Brian lives in Wisconsin. And the Just Stand Up Award goes doubly to two people at Wisconsin. One is University of Wisconsin star basketball guard Bronson Koenig, who's a member of Ho-Chunk Nation and made the trip to Standing Rock to stand with the people opposing Dapple. This is not the first political foray for Bronson Koenig. In 2015, amidst the Badgers' run to the Final Four, he spoke out against racist Native American mascots, such as the one we have here in Washington, telling the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, that term comes from when we were skinned and our flesh was red. I don't see how that's honoring us in any way. And in an interview with Yahoo Sports just done last month, Koenig spoke about why he was going to Standing Rock, and he said, I want to take time out of my schedule to pray with them and protest with them and show them that I am right alongside them. They've always had my back, whether I had an awful game or a great game, and this is my way of repaying the favor, end quote. So just stand up to Bronson Koenig for using his hyper-exalted platform at the University of Wisconsin to raise the frequency of Standing Rock. Now, the other Just Stand Up Award got to go to somebody we've actually already given it to, and that's Nigel Hayes, star basketball player as well at the University of Wisconsin. People may or may not have seen this, but at the University of Wisconsin football game this last weekend, a person brought into the stands an effigy of Barack Obama with a noose around his neck and was hanging it, hanging Barack Obama in a noose. Now, this person, to my knowledge, was not kicked out of the stadium. And Nigel Hayes not only went on a Twitter storm about the racism of this, but also posted the school's code of conduct on social media to say that it is absolutely outrageous that this person was allowed to have what is not just hate speech, but what is a projected violent threat at a school event towards every student of color. And you know what happened then? The police in Madison issued their own statement that, hey, it's just freedom of speech. It's all good. That's one of the scariest things about this moment right now is that you have the police in this country, their organizations, their unions, openly endorsing and supporting an avowed white supremacist to become president of this country. And I don't think you can disconnect the fact that the police have taken that hardline position to the police saying, what? A lynched Barack Obama? All fun and games. Jeez, it's not. And it's wrong. And it's so important that we have people like Nigel Hayes stand up to it. Because you're sure as hell not seeing the school president or any of the timid powers that be standing up to it. Thank you in a very difficult time for being flickers of hope. And now it's time this week on Edge of Sports for calls. 401-426-3343. We always love hearing from the audience. We always love getting feedback. Pick up your phone. I'm on the request line. 
Hey Dave, I'm a communication studies professor at a small liberal arts college just outside of Kansas City, Missouri, and I started a sports communication class with a group of 22 undergraduate students in the fall, right before the news of the Kaepernick protest broke in August. And it was all my students wanted to talk about. And at first, they were just repeating these really unevolved uh, takes that they heard on sports networks. But the Edge of Sports podcast was helpful to me as an educator because I was able to promise them that if they were patient for just a few days, that some material would emerge uh, probably from your podcast that would challenge them in a way that the mainstream sports media would definitely not. Uh, and I was right. And I'm really thankful for everything that you're doing. Uh, that was a terrific call. I really wish I'd had you as a professor. So thank you so much, Large Profess. Call us back. Let us know who you are. I'd love to Skype into the class. Dave, your show is amazing. This has been, you had Costas. He was a little bit controversial. But would you ever consider having, you know, some white athletes maybe who are a little bit more controversial? Some white athletes, pro athletes who are, you know, Trump supporters. My ultimate dream would be to see you interview Tom Brady. He's my favorite player ever, but I hate his politics. He's a friend of Donald Trump's, and he's been gutless. He hasn't disavowed that friendship, and he stays apolitical. And I think that that's the ultimate form of white privilege and denial. At the same time, that I think he's the greatest player he's ever played. You're the best, man. Keep it up. Bye. Thank you so much for that call, Ben. I, I just love our listeners so much. And I love that we have a show where people can call in and speak both to how much they love Tom Brady and how much they want to see Tom Brady get eviscerated for his politics. I mean, I think it's possible to be of two minds on questions like this. And I like that I have an audience who also <laughs> thinks one could be of two minds on these things. Um, let me put it out there right now. I would love to have a white right-wing athlete. Hell, I'd love to have Tom Brady. Sitting in this seat, I would fly to Boston or Stad or wherever he and Giselle happen to spend their time. We'll argue, we'll become buds, and then we'll go hang out with Giselle and have some capirinhas. How about this? Some gingibres. That's the drink, buddy. The gingibre. It's like a capirinha with pure ginger. Thank you, guys. Have a good day. <laughs> Hello, this is Mark. Dave, I love your show. You're doing a great job. I just wanted to respond to your questions. I definitely believe that NCAA players should be compensated more than they do. That is more than zero dollars. <laughs> I also agree that um, Adrian Gonzalez made the right decision to avoid going to Trump hotels. I don't think it interferes with team unity. A few of my friends and I, when we go out, we try to avoid things that are owned by him or other <laughs> companies or corporations that we disagree with. So I, I think it's 100% appropriate for him to do that. I had a question for you, though. I was wondering if you have found or could interview an athlete, find one who is supporting a figure like Jill Stein. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like preaching to the choir to oppose Trump, but I'm not too thrilled about Hillary Clinton either. I was wondering if you ever found an athlete and can get his or her thoughts on a third-party candidate like Jill Stein. And I would very much appreciate an interview or just a reference to an athlete who's taken a stand like that. Thanks a lot, Dave. Keep up the good work.
Thank you so much, Mark. That's a terrific question. Believe me, if there was a Jill Stein supporting athlete, you would know about them if for no other reason that they would be a guest on this show at this time. I wonder sometimes about Colin Kaepernick and whether he supports Jill Stein, if only because he has been forthright in his dissatisfaction and criticism with both major party candidates. But obviously that doesn't necessarily mean a vote for Green. So not sure about an athlete who is supporting Jill Stein. If we can find him, we'll get him on the show. And this is as good a time as any to say to folks, I really do think next Tuesday people should go out and vote. Uh, Vote for the candidate who best represents the kind of world that you want to see. Don't vote out of fear. Vote out of hope, whoever that person happens to be. And on a totally different note, I just... I hate Donald Trump so much. All right, going on to to, to the next caller, please. Hi, uh, my name is Zach Weiner, and I'm calling in response to a question asked on the show about uh, Adrian Gonzalez and team unity versus protest. My feeling was uh, that we've got to recognize that team unity is forged in conflict. Conflict isn't an outcropping just of what happens on the field, not unlike the opportunity created by Kaepernick's protest or like the one that would have been created by adding Michael Sam to an active roster, Adrian Gonzalez gives the opportunity to the Dodgers to become more united. It gives his teammates an opportunity to get more informed about something and stick up for their teammate and for their fans. Teams don't exist in hermetically sealed worlds, so I reject the argument that Gonzalez's refusal to stay at a Trump hotel upsets the delicate balance of a clubhouse. Professional baseball teams in the society in which they exist are not Venn diagrams that overlap. When a player like Gonzalez reacts to the conditions of that society, they're concentric circles. Teams exist within a sociopolitical landscape, and asking players to ignore that landscape is an absurd expectation and a privileged one. So, no. No, teams don't get to pretend that the rest of us don't exist. If they want us to consume their product and celebrate their victories, they have to reckon with the same issues that affect us. Also, given the fact that the league is 30% Latino and the Dodgers have a huge Latino fan base, it seems just absurdly tone-deaf to stay at the hotel of a neo-fascist who's calling for mass deportations and a larger border wall. I mean, that's just me. Anyway, Dave, thank you so much for bringing it week in and week out. And uh, if I might, in case this somehow manages to make it on the air, a uh, shout-out to my grandpa, Frank, who passed away last week, just shy of his 99th birthday. Frank was a lifelong Cubs fan who never saw him win at all. So let's go Cubbies. Win one for Frank. Thank you. Bye. Wow. Thank you so much. Zach is somebody who I've met several times. One of the sharpest knives in the box one-on-one. And I'm kind of glad now all my listeners get to know what a smart guy that guy is. Uh, Zach, thank you so much for that call. And yeah, come on, Chi-Town. Let's win this one for Frank. Those calls were fantastic. I love getting calls into the show, not only because it proves that people are listening, but also because it shows the, the, the real passion that you guys bring to this show. And I know it's there. I get the emails. I get the tweets. But I love collectivizing uh, the passion that people feel for what we talk about. It's a tribute to our guests. It's a tribute to my producer, Dan Bloom. Um, and it's a tribute to the fact that there is a vacuum out there for serious sports coverage. 
Uh, so, yo, check it out. Poll question for next week. Just call 401-426-3343. Based on your knowledge of sports and based on the individual personalities involved in sports, who is it that you want to see become the next political athlete who really steps out there and says something? Who do you think it could be and who do you want it to be? And I came to this question when a terrific journalist named an editor named Jamila Lemieux on Twitter asked me, who do you think the Kaepernick of the NBA is going to be? And I answered her very honestly. I said, look, I, I try to chart this stuff for a living, and I never would have told you that Kaepernick would have been the Kaepernick of the NFL. You know, sometimes these things really just happen. I mean, you can read it backwards with Kaepernick in terms of what he was tweeting, what he was reading. But in real time, it was like, whoa, Colin Kaepernick, look at that. And so it's a bit of an open question. But I'd like to know who you think should and who you think could be that next political athlete. Just call 401-426-3343. That's 401-426-EDGE. That's all we have for this week. Thank you so much to my producer, Dangerous Dan Bloom. Thank you so much to our associate producer, David Tigaboo. Thanks to Twitter users Ryan Gasser, Matthew Capetta, David Leonard, and Susie Rack. You can follow me or tweet me at Edge of Sports. Thank you to all our callers. Thank you to Brian Ward, terrific journalist on Native American issues who's taught me so much about Dapple and without knowing it prepared me for this interview. You can always contact me, Dave Zirin, at Edge of Sports. So proud of our show last week with Jessica Luther. You can listen to that or any of our back shows at www.edgeofsportspodcast.com. Please leave a rating on iTunes. Please leave a little comment. All of that makes a huge difference. And please tell a friend. Podcasts thrive through word of mouth. That's what makes them awesome and authentic. We are out of here. Peace.